Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we discuss how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to deal exclusively with one of the biggest fraudulent cases of our time at Wirecard that has led to the arrest of its former CEO and the company filing for insolvency. This is all alleged at the moment, remind you. But it's still a huge deal. It's the biggest thing since Enron, so we got to talk about it in total. And speaking of Enron, there has been a lot of fraud that's happened in the corporate world throughout the years. So what's going to happen at the end of this episode is Rick Marshall, our corporate governance guru, is going to join us because he's covered a lot of these fraudulent cases throughout the year, and I think it would do well for some history. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. So a couple days ago in early June, Wirecard delayed the publication of its 2019 financial statements after the company's newly hired independent auditor, KPMG, informed Wirecard of 2.1 billion U.S. in the company's cash accounts that could not be counted for. Wirecard responded by saying, well, the cash is probably just missing, and that their longtime auditor, Ernst & Young, quote, have no problem with signing off on the company's 2019 audit statements. This is all reported by... By the Financial Times, by the way. Still, no results are published on June 18th when the company said they would be. And then on June 19th, CEO Marcus Braun resigns. Then Wirecard announced on June 22nd the missing billions actually probably never really existed. Ex-CEO Braun is then arrested on June 23rd. And as of this recording, Wirecard has filed for insolvency as a beginning of the end to a wild story of fraud and corporate governance mismanagement occurs. The story started back in 2018, actually, when the head of a German shareholder association published an attack on Wirecard suggesting balance sheet irregularities. Now, the people that reported on those attacks actually had shares in Wirecard, so they were arrested since they didn't disclose those holdings, and authorities thought they were trying to game the market by publishing bad stuff and then selling on the drop, what's basically called short selling. But still, there were a lot of warning signs that Wirecard wasn't kosher. And to help me through all this, I have with me today Andrew Young, who covers the company for us, and Florian Sommer, who is a corporate governance guru working with Andrew to cover Wirecard. So Andrew, what else was amiss at the company aside from the $2.1 billion they said might or might not exist? Um, okay, so um, I think... You know, a couple of things um, that are interesting besides the fact that there's been uh, a forensic audit going on uh, since October last year. Um, firstly, uh, the company's asset turnover rate, that's the rate of sales divided by assets, is super low compared to uh, its peer companies. This can sort of be explained away a bit because Wirecard also has a banking license and has a small banking operation. So compared to another payment processor, its, ba- its balance sheet would be slightly bigger. Um, but the other thing um, that we found was that the company has reported 18 consecutive quarters of earnings per share growth. Um, this is highly, highly unusual. You know, it's, it's not the case that a company can so consistently um, perform uh, financially. Uh, you know, there's always uh, some reasons uh, for one or two quarters uh, to miss uh, targets. So 18 consecutive quarters of growth um, is, uh, is a serious red flag. The why on this is so fascinating. Why, why would someone commit such fraud 
when they know they're going to get caught. But I think that question is better suited for someone like Daniel Kahneman, who has written extensively on what hinders rational decision-making, because that's basically what happens here. Rational decision-making was hindered for one reason or another. That always happens with fraud. I think the question we want to answer during this podcast is how. How at a large multinational corporation could this type of fraud happen? I think I will hand this one over to Florian, maybe, because I think it's got something to do with the CEO who has been there since the early 2000s. Uh, He's the one responsible for all of this growth in the company, and he has the major stake in the company. So his fortunes are very much tied to the fortunes of the company. I would totally agree with that. So I think, you know, that's, it's, it's a perfect example of how it's, it's important to have sort of outside perspectives and, and somebody who can sort of constructively challenge the king, basically. You know, you have this guy, he's the largest shareholder, he effectively built up the business, he's had all the success, you know, he, mm-hmm. he brought the company into the stocks, you know, blue chip index, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, all this growth. But you know, the people who were supposed to not only advise him, but just, you know, just say, look, you know, maybe there's something there, you know, can we think again, you know, what about this? What about this? This is serious. They just uh, apparently didn't do it uh, effectively. So that's, that's really sort of, um, you know, when you, when you have these very successful CEOs uh, and they're, and they're not challenged effectively, I think that that can lead to, to lots of trouble. I think for um, most American listeners or non-German listeners, probably there's, this idea that there's just the board of directors, but their Wirecard and a lot of German companies have what's called a dual board structure. Could you kind of go into what that means? Because I think it's important for why this fraud could have happened, why the oversight wasn't there, um, just in general. So, um, you have this supervisory board under this dual board structure that the company has that is supposed to you know, effectively oversee management and also try to make sure that, you know, there's sufficient oversight of accounting and internal controls. Um, but compared to a lot of other German companies, especially the big companies that are included in the stocks index, they just apparently didn't have the manpower and the, um, the, the resources. So it was a very small supervisory board. It didn't have an audit committee for a long time until 2019. So throughout all this period of growth, they essentially um, didn't have a specialized committee to oversee these sort of accounting issues. Um, and I think that that sort of uh, is, is, a big, is a big weakness. Yeah, and just to kind of give you an idea of how understaffed this supervisory board basically was, at the time of all this going down, they had six members. The average size of the MSCI World Supervisory Board in Germany is 14 members. They now have, Wirecard now only has five supervisory members. Now, only three Of the 57 boards we looked at that are located in Germany that are a part of the MSCI world have fewer than six directors, are are at Wirecard's level. That's only 0.5% of the universe. And of the the broader universe outside of Germany, only 24 of the 1,500 MSCI world boards that we looked at have fewer than six directors. And just to give you a regional example, more than half of those are Japanese companies. And the problem with this is that when you're understaffed as a board and you have a CEO that is both the CEO and the company's CTO, chief technology officer, you leave a board that's entirely too dependent on the CEO. They can't really figure out what's going on in terms of understanding how the company actually operates. 
which of course turned out to be a recipe for disaster as we now know. Wouldn't this be seen as a huge risk and weren't investors worried about this type of stuff when they saw it? If you don't have an audit board, isn't it automatically like, well, you're going to be able to commit fraud if you so choose and no one's going to stop you? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. I, I think I think it should definitely have raised uh, big, big red flags. Um, the, the thing is that the company went through a period of very rapid growth and it was making some changes to this oversight structure. So they did do some changes. They added members to the supervisory board. They only had three members for a long time. Right. And then they added members and then they also you know, created these committees. So they did make some changes. Um, but it seems like the changes were not, you know, deep enough and it just didn't keep up with the complexity uh, and the growth of the business. What changes would you have liked to have seen early on? You know, you see something like this and it freaks you out. And let's say you're a major shareholder. You go to the company and you say, you need to make X, X, Y, Z changes. What are those changes? Well, so I think they should have added more people to the supervisory board sooner um, to actually be able to create and then adequately staff the committees. Um, so yes, the co- creating a committee itself is important, but it's not just that. It's also about who sits on the committees, right? So the other issue that's really notable in this case is that even now in June 2020, so right you know, before these recent developments, we actually flagged this company for a lack of expertise a lack of risk management expertise on the supervisory board uh, and also a lack of an industry expert on on their sort of relatively new audit committee. So that is certainly something I would have liked to to have seen um, changed. And ju- just to add to that, yeah, it's a it's a complex business um, payment processing and particularly the business that's in question here, which is called it's a acquiring merchant acquiring business. So it's a very complex business. So if you're charged with auditing this complex business, you should probably understand how the business works. So without that industry expert on the audit committee, um, you maybe have to question um, their ability to understand uh, the accounts. What effect do you think this has on the broader market? What's the future because of this? You know, Enron was such a big splash after it happened. What do you see happening after this? I, I think just to, sorry, just to jump in here, I think... In, in terms of the market perspective, there, there's certainly some questions um, that that should be asked about also the role of, of the German regulators. Um, I remember when this whole story came out initially in the FT in, in sort of early 2019, uh, the company sort of brushed it all aside and said, you know, nothing to see here. Um, but the stories kept coming, you know, backed up by, by whistleblowers. And essentially what happened in the beginning was that also the, the German authorities didn't really think much of it. And, and actually what they did was they, they started investigating the journalists uh, rather, rather than the company. So I, I think that's, that's really also notable and you know, going forward, um, some, something that, that should, be, should be challenged. Not a good look, Germany. Not a good look. Okay, we've gone through what is allegedly going on at Wirecard. But before we go, I think we need some perspective here because 
What is supposedly happening is not an anomaly. It's happened numerous times throughout the years, and a majority of those times I wasn't actually around to understand the context. And the thing is, the context with these stories are important, because with fraud cases, you often have these issues of overly powerful CEOs and boards that didn't really rein in those CEOs or in some cases were complicit with the CEOs or the management in the alleged wrongdoing. And at the heart of it, fraud is some of the earliest cases of the power of governance, the G and ESG acronym. And it just so happens my colleague Rick Marshall was there at the beginning of our understanding of the G power. So Rick... I'm excited to introduce a new segment I hope to do as often as possible, one I like to call Hysterix. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what it would be too, Mike, because this was uh, these are personal experiences for me. I, I remember very well back in 1998, I was um, just beginning to get into corporate governance and, and become an analyst in this area. Um, and I, my, the firm that I, I worked for was very much involved in... Um, um, a CEO fraud scandal uh, at a firm called Waste Management in, based in Chicago. Um, that was 1998. Um, and, it, and it was one of the events that led us to start thinking about the possibility of scoring companies on corporate governance, rating companies on corporate governance, which eventually we did. Um, but, you know, the, the period that really kicked that into high gear, uh, it's almost, ironically, almost the golden age of CEO fraud was, um, oh, let's say 2001 to 2003, where you had um, Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay at Enron and, and the enormous amount of damage that was done uh, there. You had Bernie Ebers at WorldCom in 2002, Dennis Koslowski at Tyco, Richard Scrushy at HealthSouth. Uh, that period was just rife with um, um, CEOs who it, it just really unfathomable the, the things that um, that they did to make their companies look better, uh, appear to be stronger, better, more powerful, um, and how much damage was was done because of that. Um, a, a little bit later on as kind of a premonition of what was to come in 2007 and 2008 in the financial crisis, um, I was watching very closely um, a, a large insurance company called AIG, um, which uh, ended up um, firing its uh, CEO, a very, very influential figure in the insurance space, Hank Greenberg, um, as a result of, of accounting um, problems and scandals. And, of course, then the financial crisis itself um, and, and some of the things that happened, which involved, ironically, um, the auditor of, of, um, of Wirecard, uh, Ernst & Young. You know, Lehman Brothers was a, uh, an E&Y client at that time, um, and that was one of the large financial services companies that imploded uh, due to the, to the crisis. That, that contributed to the crisis, uh, clearly. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Rick and Andrew and Florian for talking to me about this week's news with the NESC Twist. And thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Stay strong out there for whatever th thing you're fighting for. And talk to you next week.
The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.